potentially life-saving medical and health science discoveries can easily be overlooked and are often not put into practice without long delays. That was according to Andy Haynes, Director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, talking at the International Conference on Primary Health Care held in Rio de Janeiro. I asked him for some examples. Historically, of course, the most dramatic example is the example of scurvy, vitamin C deficiency, which was a major killer of sailors in the 17th, 16th, 15th centuries. Um, The first experiment was done by a a lowly surgeon in the Navy, James Lancaster, when he rather involuntarily actually did an experiment where he gave uh, lemon juice, citrus fruit juice to uh, sailors on one ship and not on the others and found that uh, the death rate was greatly increased in the ships where they didn't receive the citrus fruit juice. And the sailors on the ship which had received the lemon juice were completely um, saved, spared from scurvy. But unfortunately, that experiment was, uh, the results were essentially ignored for various reasons, partly because Lancaster wasn't very high up in the naval hierarchy. It conflicted with the prevailing ideas about what caused scurvy. And for various reasons, nothing was done at all. And it was over a century later that a a second uh, experiment was done by another naval surgeon, which uh, demonstrated, again, the same dramatic effect. But even then, it took until 1865 before the Merchant Navy actually insisted that its sailors um, did regularly take uh, lemon juice or fruit. Um, And so it is a dramatic gap of 250 years between the initial experiment and the final implementation. Now that surely is what the learned scientific and medical journals are all about. Surely the thing to do is to publish your report so that everybody can read it and then that gap is completely closed in theory. In theory that's right but the problem of course today is that we have so many publications. There are probably around two million publications, health publications every year uh, even if you look on a database like the Cochrane Library, which, which undertakes, uh, uh, brings together all the clinical trials reports, undertakes systematic reviews, you know, there's about 600,000 clinical trials in the Cochrane Library, so no single person can ever read them. So we need different ways of distilling evidence and really separating the wheat from the chaff. Give me, though, some examples of, of what has gone wrong in medicine. Well, for example, we've, we've got the very interesting example of steroids widely used in head injury to reduce intracranial pressure. These were thought to be, many, for many years, to be the kind of routine treatment that everyone with a serious head injury should have. And Ian Roberts and his colleagues here at the school showed through the crash trial that actually um, this had an adverse effect on prognosis. More people were more likely to die if they um, had steroids. So um, this, I think, dramatically illustrates how received wisdom isn't always correct. And what sort of examples crop up in primary health care of, of methods of treating patients which now seem to be less than optimal? Well, of course, one, one of the examples is the very widespread use of antibiotics for sore throats. I mean, very few of those sore throats are actually bacterial. And yet, of course, people widely use um, antibiotics for what are essentially viral infections. And it's really only been in recent years that people have started looking much more self-critically at their prescribing for common sore throats and other respiratory infections. Because once you start prescribing antibiotics unnecessarily, that encourages patients to come back 
because they then believe that they need antibiotics every time they get a relatively minor respiratory infection. So it drives up healthcare costs, increases bacterial resistance, and doesn't confer benefit to the patient. Now, there's things like education for doctors, initial education, then there's continuing education. Does that do the trick? Continuing education is important. It's necessary but not sufficient. And the evidence that we have is that continuing education meetings have a small effect. They probably improve practice by perhaps 5% or so. It depends a bit uh, whether you're starting with a low baseline of practice, in which case uh, they obviously improve it more, or whether you're already trying to improve practice, which is really quite, quite good quality. So continuing education, important probably has a fairly small effect. But there are a number of other approaches that have been used to try and improve uh, professional practice. The common one is merely circulating guidelines or written materials. Again, has a small effect. The uh, systematic reviews suggest perhaps, again, around 5%. So there's also been attempts to go out to people in their workplaces with quite reasonably uh, reasoning that it's much better to educate people where they're working. And there's quite a big literature now on outreach education. Unfortunately, that also suggests that these kind of outreach um, attempts also, on average, have a relatively uh, small effect on practice. Um, And certainly one study that I was involved with suggested that it really only shifted practice in small practices. So there were one or two doctors. Yes, you could send a pharmacist or an outreach educator out, and that would improve practice perhaps 10 15%. But if you're doing it in large practices, it's much more complex uh, to change uh, the policy and practice of a large group of people. Now, doctors traditionally are a bit conservative because they have the job of actually caring for people, not just immediately curing illness. And they're a little bit careful about not necessarily following a new treatment just because it's the latest thing. And I think we have a lot of examples in, in recent medical history that illustrate how right they are. Oh, absolutely. I think it's very right to be sceptical of new treatments. And certainly I would never advocate that people follow a new treatment merely because it's new. What, of course, needs to be done are are systematic reviews of the evidence to determine that the evidence really is compelling and consistent. And also uh, to determine whether the the intervention, the drug, for example, uh, is cost effective in in the system that you're, you're dealing with. So there's a whole science, really, of the interpretation of evidence, and there's a growing science of how you implement evidence in practice. So what is your answer? Have you got a solution, a magic solution? There is no magic bullet to ensuring that evidence is translated into practice in the shortest possible time. What you need to do is to think systematically about what element of practice you're trying to change and why, and what the barriers are to practice change. For example, it may not be a lack of knowledge. It may be that the medical team, the doctors and nurses, lack access to the appropriate diagnostic test. It may be that they know what to do, but in the, in the heat of a busy consultation, they forget what to do. And therefore, a reminder systems may work. Computerized reminder systems may bring added value. How do you advise people then to do something about all of this? What I think people need to do is to develop a coherent and integrated approach to implementing evidence in practice, which starts with the distillation, the synthesis of evidence, using resources like the Cochrane Library Systematic Reviews to decide what the robust um, evidence is, whether it's sufficient to warrant implementation, and then to look at the barriers which need to be overcome to implement that particular piece of knowledge, to decide whether it's a lack of knowledge itself, whether there are organisational barriers to change, whether it's because patients don't want 
um, don't perceive the need for the particular intervention, and then tailor your intervention to tackle those specific barriers. So it's to take a systems approach, a business-like approach to it. A systems approach to evidence-based practice and implementation, I think, is the way forward. And that means that you need to really bring together these different streams, whether they be education, audit and feedback, um, information systems, information technology, information and evidence to patients. They need to be brought together in a more coherent way. That was Andy Haynes of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine talking to me on his return from the International Conference on Primary Healthcare held in Brazil. For Audio News, I'm Peter Goodwin.